Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello, welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carol Matchett. How are you, sir? Ready for the return of real football. I say as always, I wasn't here for the Burnley game. I hope you and Guy had a nice old chat. Did the game turn out as you expected as Liverpool beat Burnley 1-0? If you put into an AI sort of machine or program or just ask someone, you know, one of the pundits who are filled with cliches to do a match report without knowing what happened and told them it was Burnley at home, then it would have gone exactly as they said. It would have been windy in the match report. It would have been cold. It would have been grey. It would have been a set-piece goal. It would have been a very narrow victory for somebody. So, yes, this was not the most difficult one to to predict. I think I actually predicted 1-0 in the end as well. So, full points to me and uh, none for you. In fact, minus points for you because you weren't there. (laughs) I described the game yesterday as... If Sean Dyche's face was a football match, it would have been that match right there yesterday. Uh, Cold, dreary, unexciting, hard work to watch. You know, the consequences of past decisions really coming home to roost on your face. Uh, Not the best of games, but I will say, Carl, I did think that from 60 we really did control the game very comfortably and we finally got to see the Naby Keita, Fabinho, Thiago Alcantara midfield and I thought it worked very, very well in the limited time they played. Long overdue. Um, huh? Long overdue. Oh, years overdue. Years of, literally, the week after I write it off as something we're never going to see, Klopp pulls it out of the bag. So that's that's nice to see. Um Obviously, the media narrative was that Burnley had lots of great chances. Uh, apparently, no pundit or Sean Dyche himself understands what offside means. Liverpool's offside is risky, and it doesn't work, and they need to, to move on and do something different, even though they've caught teams offside. I think 102 times now this season, uh, 50 or something more than... No, 42 more, maybe, than Manchester City. Um, and 52 more than anyone else in the league. So, you know, it'll tell you the the quality of punditry you're getting on match of the day and such. Um, We We, do have... just add one on this this section? Um, I don't think it was on match of the day, but I heard that one actually former Liverpool player pundit was uh, discussing our marking at set pieces and saying how it wasn't working. I, I find it very, very odd that these people come up with these things in a game Liverpool did not concede a goal in. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, you'd struggle really over the time that we've had Van Dyke in the team to think of too many times where our marking from set pieces 
doesn't work. I mean, we are one of the more dominant set-piece teams in the league um, at both ends of the field, obviously. I think we've scored the most goals from set-pieces this season, and I'm almost certain we're in the bottom couple for goals conceded on set-pieces. So if what we're doing isn't working, I shudder to think what the views are on those other teams who are conceding a lot more goals than we are. I mean, you only have to look at a couple of the uh, the notable matches this weekend, to be fair, including ours. I mean, you know, Burnley obviously held up as paragons of virtue for uh, defensive masterclasses and being able to shut out matches and all that kind of, you know, good old English stuff, despite them mm. actually conceding off a set-piece, losing and being bottom of the table. Yeah. <laughs> With one win all season. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's just, just... There's no correlation between what the reality is and the narratives that are spun by these type of people. Um, again, like you, you look at the the reaction post-match. So Fabinho was asked, you know, a question about Burnley and the, the guy interviewing him says, well, they had a lot of good chances and Fab laughs at him. And then Deich comes out afterwards and says, we had lots of good chances. We had the best chances in the game. Well, what chances did you have that were better than Fabinho tapping home from a yard out? What real chances did you have? There's the Jay Rodriguez one that Ali uh, smothers at his feet. And aside from that, I'm really struggling to think of any decent chance they had that wasn't called back for offside. There's still this thing whereby if you win a corner and the crowd responds by going, come on, or you send over a cross, which, you know, almost gets near somebody in the six yard box, that that counts as a chance. It it isn't. It's mm. just, that's where the ball is. It's not a chance if there's nobody actually gets on the end of that cross. No, it's, it's not even just because a good the crowd ball. get excited. No. If you play a ball, even if the technique is nice and the angle is nice, if you play a ball into an area where there's none of your teammates, it's just not a good ball. Like, there was an example yesterday for Liverpool. Henderson played a ball into the box on the half volley yesterday, and it looked very nice, but it wasn't close to any of our players. And then the argument afterwards, well, it was a great ball. Mane should have been there, but he, but he wasn't there. Like, he was somewhere else on the pitch. So it wasn't a great ball. We won't go into the Henderson performance. It was appalling. That's all that really needs to be said. We can move on. Um, we did have a question from Dell. You don't watch the championship, so no use to you. But Jed Spence from Middlesbrough is on loan at Nottingham Forest. Um, I really like him. Sam Maguire, I don't think does, but you know, Sam is just bad news, Maguire. I think Jed Spence or Jaden Bogle would make a lot of sense for us in that backup right back spot. Though I do think Mazraoui from Ajax on a free might be the smartest of smart moves. Uh, but if it's Jed Spence, I'd be delighted. I think he's been excellent this season for, for Forrest, especially since Steve Cooper took over. And he's young, he's homegrown. And uh, I think there's plenty of upside there. The one I do really want from Forrest, though, is Brennan Johnson. Um, obviously, we've been linked with Harvey Barnes in recent years, and he's almost certainly now out of, out of what the price range would be for us. But if Sadio leaves, you'd assume Diaz becomes the starter on the left side. I think that's the, the, train, the train of thought. So we would need a backup to Diaz, someone to ideally develop behind him in that role. And Brennan Johnson would be my choice. I think he can play right side, he can play left side, you can play him through the middle. He's on an absolute tear through the championship at the minute. And um yeah, that that's who I would go for from Forest. And I'd go Masrawi probably if I was picking a right back, largely because he's an experienced international. I don't think the wages would be insane. He's got a bit of flexibility and versatility in that he can play two or three different positions. And uh, I think he's a plug-and-play option who can literally just be slotted in, and he'll give you seven out of ten, a little bit like Costas on the the uh, the left side. Um, I don't know if you've seen much of Johnson. I know you you do like Masrawi from from memory, 
Uh, would you take Masrawi as the backup to Trent this summer? Oh, I absolutely would. I think it makes a lot of sense because he's on a free transfer, because he can play both sides. I think when I mentioned him not too long ago, I said that he's played even central midfield a few times for them. Not a position I would particularly recommend him going into for Liverpool, but at least the options there, if ever we do end up in a spot like last year with so many injuries in one area of the park, it's always good to have versatility like that. Uh, and obviously gives him more opportunities to get minutes elsewhere as well. Uh, I don't honestly have too much to say about the the younger players in the championship because, no, I don't watch them anywhere near enough. Uh, Brennan Johnson, I watched a couple of games earlier on. I think it was around December, January time when he was linked with Bournemouth. Uh, no, sorry, Brentford and Newcastle. Mm. Uh, so I did watch a couple of games there, but nowhere near enough to be making judgments on uh, how he'll step up or where he'd fit in. I guess we're still looking at Carvalho anyway for that. Yeah, possibly, but uh, Carvalho's a different type. Like, he's not that wide forward that we kind of use. So I, I do wonder if there's a different plan for him. Um, but it will be interesting to see what we do if we do land Carvalho and where he might play. Um, I've sort of become overly invested in Forrest's season because when they appointed Steve Cooper, I spent about two days arguing with people on social media, including a lot of Nottingham Forest fans and a lot of Swansea fans, that I thought he was a great appointment, and they didn't. Swansea fans said he was boring, that it was the football was crap, and that they were better off without him. Forest fans took on board what the Swansea fans were saying and said it was a bad appointment off the back of Chris Hewton, and of course they've had Martin O'Neill recently as well. And I am now doing a victory lap because they've been outstanding under Steve Cooper. Swansea are garbage this season and Forest fans are on a weekly basis now uh, messaging me to apologise for doubting my sheer genius. Um, <laughs> they're not, they, are, they are tweeting me to apologise for disagreeing, but they're, they're, they haven't quite caught on to the genius yet. Anyway... Liverpool play on Wednesday night against Inter Milan in the Champions League at the San Siro, our second trip to the San Siro this season. We beat AC Milan there with, I mean, to say it was half a team would probably be exaggerating the quality of it, Carl. Is this more Nat Phillips slander? No, not at all, not at all. But, like, you know, we went there... And it's it's AC Milan, it's the San Siro, it's legendary. And you just, I guess both of us have been very invested in AC Milan as well in recent years and their attempts to get back to former glories. But, you know, we had Nico, Nash, Ox, Morton and Tacky as a midfield, Divock as the nine. The only starters that were in the team were Ali, Mo, and Sadio, and both of them came off. Like Max Waltman came on, Connor Bradley came on, uh, James Norris, Elijah Dixon Bonner, and Harvey Davies were all named on the bench. Like it wasn't like we had, say, six starters and then five rotation players. We had three starters and eight rotation players, one of whom was the fifth centre-back, another of whom is the ninth midfielder, and another of whom is the sixth striker, who or the fifth striker maybe at the time, who was played out of position in midfield. It was a very, you know, very much a weakened Liverpool team, but we still went there and, and won fairly comfortably on the night. Yeah, I, I think that there would be at least one of those players involved who probably won't play another game for Liverpool, if not maybe two or three of them, to be perfectly honest. So that tells you something about the lineup that was there. Uh, I find it quite interesting that you mentioned that we were both invested in AC Milan uh, a bit and their season and their progress, because actually in preparation for this podcast with Inter Milan, I started looking back at our game with AC and then suddenly, or somehow, went completely off the rails and uh, gave myself a list of about 25 AC Milan things to talk about, because that's the game that I was looking at. So that was all a load of waste of time. <laughs> Look, I've done I've done exactly the same for previous podcasts on this, so uh, I can't mock too much. Uh, Inter Milan finished second in their Champions League group. They were in Group D with Real Madrid, 
Sheriff Tiraspol and Shakhtar Donetsk. They lost both games to Real Madrid. They drew away to Donetsk, beat them at home, and they beat Sheriff in both games 3-1. They had been top of Serie A for the last little while, but they've just dropped off now. AC are top, though Inter do have a game in hand and quite a substantial uh, goal difference advantage. So, look, they they are a good team. Um, Do you think, considering there's a point between them in the table, and if Inter win their game in hand, they'll only be two points ahead, are they substantially better than AC Milan? And are they a team that we should be really concerned about or just a team that we should respect but expect to beat? Yeah, the latter. I don't think that there are maybe more than one or two teams in the whole of Europe who fall into that first category that we should actually be worried about as such. Uh, obviously, you have to still do all the things like preparing and you know, the analysis and make sure you know what they're doing and all the rest of it. Same with any top team that you play. But basically, yes, we are a level above... Inter, when both teams are fully fit and at their best and full strength and all the rest of it. Uh, you compare them to AC Milan, well, they played only a couple of weeks ago, obviously, and I would say Inter definitely had the better of the first half there, and they were leading, but they gave up that game. Um, that's no other way to put it, really. They let AC Milan back into the match. They ended up losing 2-1. There were you know, a couple of red cards towards the end of the game, but they didn't really affect the flow of the game as such. This was a game where into sort of stop doing some of the good things that they do and you saw quite a few of their uh, deficits from this season as a whole I think they're not a team who have really struggled too much at any point in Serie A this season but I mean look at the, the the record for example that they have in the league and compare it to Manchester City they've won 16 of 24 six draws and two defeats now one of the defeats was against AC like we just said there so it's not a huge volume of defeats but we know that Italian football as a whole, certainly in the, I would say, mid and lower part of the table, is a lot lower than it used to be maybe 10, 15 years ago, let's say. So if they're not absolutely running away with it, then there's no specific reason to say they are you know, among the very, very best in Europe right now. That's just your, your base points to go from. Not that they can't beat any of the big sides on a, on a one-off game or if you catch them on a good day or anything like that, but just in general terms... They're not absolutely stand out. I don't think that a few of the key players they have in in really major roles here are at the top of their game at the moment. Um, I think if you look at someone like Hakan Chalhanoglu, for example, plays a really important tactical role for them between that third midfielder and sort of the service man towards the, the front two. I don't think he's of an elite level. He has really good games sometimes, and he has a few things that he does very very well. But I would also say that out of every ten games I watch him. Maybe six can bypass him quite a bit. And maybe he'll do a couple of things in that game, which is really good. But overall, he's not someone who will just run the game in the way that, let's say, Nicola Barella does for them. Um, the front two, they work very, very well as a partnership. And I think that that's the biggest thing Liverpool will have to watch out for. The wingbacks, we could do well against, or I think we'll talk about them in a bit more detail later on. But basically, that front two is something we've struggled against at times, especially if there's a runner from deep. And uh, those are the more specific things I think they could cause us problems with rather than the quality of the team as a whole. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I like They're clearly a good team. I don't think this Inter Milan team is as good as last year's team. I would have had more concern playing last year's team with Lukaku up front next to uh, Laturo. I thought the midfield options were a little bit more balanced because Sensi was getting more games. Um, it, it doesn't appear like um, Inzaghi had any time for him and it shipped him out on loan. Hakimi was just an absolute weapon down the right flank last season as well. And last year, De Vries was a year younger and playing a lot better than he has been this year. Schrinier's having a decent season, but Bastoni has been out injured the last week or two and is a doubt for our game. Plus, you've got Handanovic a year older. And Inzaghi's just not of the same calibre as Conte. So I think last year's team would have concerned me a bit more. This year's team, yeah, it, it's a team that needs to be respected. It's a good team with a lot of good players. But there's also some players in that team that I think are past their best and 
inconsistent. I think Denzel Dumfries can be an inconsistent footballer. I think in midfield, without uh, Barella, you're looking at a, a way past his best. Vidal coming in. Chalanaglu, he's a good player, but he is unquestionably inconsistent. Uh, Gagliardini is inconsistent. Visenio is inconsistent. I mean, even Perisic is, is a player I, I've I've loved for years, but he is now 33, and he's been asked to cover an awful lot of ground for a player that has a lot of miles on his legs. And then obviously Jacko up front, still a, a very capable goal scorer, obviously. I think he's got 14 or 15 for the season, but he's almost 36 years of age, and he's not as mobile as he once was. So, yeah, I think there's... There's a lot of good in that team, but there's also some areas of real concern. Like this doesn't feel to me like an Inter Milan team set up to have a long run of success. It feels like it might be quite a short run thing, in part because of how Conte built the squad with a lot of win now players, in part because of the financial ramifications of the pandemic causing them to lose Hakimi at, what, 22-23 and Lukaku in the middle of his prime and not being able to replace them with similar players of similar calibre. Yeah, I think that that was the big thing. The, you know, Any of the sides, the big sides, you can have to sell players from time to time, but it is important to replace them with, if not equal quality directly, then at least to make sure that the squad level overall doesn't go down. You know, if you do sell one of the best players in any given position, well, maybe you use that to sign three really good players elsewhere. But I think this time around, they did actually downgrade each time. Um, like you say, uh, Hakimi to Dumfries is a downgrade. Lukaku to Dzeko, that's a downgrade. And even in the managerial position, it's a downgrade as it stands. Inzaghi, maybe with years and experience and all the rest of it could go on to be of the similar standing and i think certainly he's done well to get to even where he is right now but not there yet he's not and um i have to say it's pretty good in terms of inter's recruitment and decision making for a bit of continuity in terms of the manager coming in pretty much as close as you could get to conte for his for his tactical setup for his formation basis obviously uh and similar traits if not abilities in all those traits for the players who they used to to replace the, the players that they had to sell. So I think that that was quite well worked as much as they could do, but obviously there were financial restrictions there. They've got the new stadium plans coming through soon. So there's a, probably still a couple of years before you can say Inter on a, maybe a footing to go toe-to-toe with some of Europe's biggest and best. But the longer they're in the Champions League, obviously the, the better that will be for them in trying to catch up. Yeah. Similar to how, obviously, Juventus did sort of 10 years ago when they started their run of dominance, they just kind of did build slowly. They brought in a lot of more experienced players and were able to cycle through a couple of different managers and maintain that success. They built a new stadium themselves and year after year being in the Champions League did allow them to sort of swell their finances and everything was going swimmingly for Juventus until Beppe Maratta decided to leave and go to Inter. And if there's one reason that I would have faith in Inter to potentially be able to go on like a four or five year period of dominance, become a force in Europe, it is Beppe Maratta. And when he left Juventus, we saw what Paratici did with bad signings, bad free agent signings, and left them in a massive financial black hole uh, off to, to joyously run roughshod through Spurs I can only imagine the conversations that him and Daniel Levy have considering Levy's hatred of spending money and his love of recklessly throwing it away and then pouring gasoline afterwards and throwing matches galore. Um, You mentioned inter-squad building in the summer. They brought in Chalanaglu on a free. They brought in Alex Cordaz on a free. He's just a third-choice keeper. Uh, Manchester United legend Matteo Damian brought in from Parma. Uh, Nunziatini, a youngster brought in from Laverno for the specific sum of €92,000. Zinho van Hoosden, who's an interesting one, he's a Belgian central defender that Inter owned previously, having stolen him from Standard Liège as a child, uh, binned him off back to Standard after he had a knee injury. He's had like two or three ACL tears 
and he's only 22. He's currently on loan at Genoa. He has not been particularly good for Genoa, but Genoa have been a train wreck. But, you know, looking at the long term, he might be one that they do plan to have with, with Bastoni at the back. Uh, Ed and Jacko brought in, Denzel Dumfries brought in. And in the three loan signings, one, I know you're a fan of Joaquin Correa. Robin Gosen's on a, a loan with an obligation in January just gone was a great signing. And Philippe Casado, who'll be a squad player and not much else. They lost Candreva, uh, Politino, Hakimi, Jamario, Lukaku, Raja Nanglin, who'd been on loan for a couple of years anyway, uh, and Christian Eriksen, obviously, whose contract was terminated after his health issues and his the inability to get him cleared to play. They, like most Italian clubs, have 417 players out on loan, the majority of who, whom we'll never hear of uh, playing for Inter. But yeah, you are right. I mean, you know, they, they added Chalinaglu in midfield. They added Darmian as, you know, a bit of extra squad depth defensively. Um, Zeko and, and Dumfries were brought in as sort of like-for-like replacements for position for position replacements would be a better way to say it for Lukaku and and um Hakimi, but obviously the this type of planning wasn't quite enough for Conte. Uh what have you thought of Joaquin Correa this season in what you've seen? I know you've been a big fan for a couple of years. Yeah, I think he's settled really quickly and he, he was playing very, very well earlier on in the season. He's had injury issues since mm. then. Um, obviously, the biggest issue that he has is that he was kind of brought in as a, uh, a fire extinguisher plan, basically, in case they lost Lautaro Martinez because he plays the same role. He plays the same you know, second forward out of the, the two-man attack. And so he's not going to be paired with Lautaro all the time or even at all, basically. So it is only a case of rotations, uh, substitution, game changer, that kind of thing, where he's really been able to start, or the odd occasion where Martinez has been rested or not available. So he does face a bit of an issue to get game time there. Uh, I I don't think that there's actually a huge gap between them in terms of final third productivity and consistency on the ball, that kind of thing. I think Laudato's real... uh, positive for, for being chosen all the time ahead of Correa, other than the fact that obviously he's a fan favourite and has been there for ages, is more in terms of his movement and how aggressive he can be in getting into goal-scoring positions. And Correa is sort of someone who goes much more towards the ball, much more looking to be the link-up player and then attack from deep, whereas with uh, Martinez, obviously he can just lay it off one touch and he'll be in alongside a Lukaku or a Zeko or whatever and play off them. So maybe just a little bit more out-and-out forward rather than well, he's effectively a converted attacker midfielder for Correa becoming a, mm. a two, one, of a, one of two in attack when he was at Lazio. Um, it's not that far removed from when he was still playing out wide, in fact. So it is still a little new for him to play in that kind of a role. But overall, I think good, but just not as involved as he would have probably liked to have been or even deserved to be because a couple of times he's come off the bench and completely changed the game for them. Yeah, I think, like you said, I think the injuries were sort of a real hammer blow to him because it, there was a bit of a feeling among some of the Inter fans that I talked to that maybe what we were going to see in the second half of the season was a switch from that 3-5-2 to more of a 3-4-3, where he might just play a little bit withdrawn behind Laturo and, and Dzeko and try and get the best of all. Because obviously, he's a long-time favourite of Inzaghi. He, they were together at Lazio for years. He was very, very successful. At Lazio under Nzaghi, played you know brilliantly in that in that attacking lineup with Immobile in front, and then the, the two attacking midfielders coming in support. Former Red Luis Alberto and and Sergei Milinkovic Savic. And I have to say, like some of the football that Lazio team played is was right up there with what Atalanta play in terms of just pleasing on the eye, of course, ruined by the presence of Lucas Leiva, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I'm never letting that one go. Um, no, but like the one thing I'll say with Inzaghi is he is fundamentally, stylistically, there's a lot of similarities between him and Conte, but there's a more aesthetically pleasing nature to what Inzaghi does as opposed to what Conte does, which 
at times can be quite automated. Yeah, that's probably fair. And I think that that's probably obviously contributes a bit to Conte's teams being very, very difficult to score goals past, to be fair, um, which is not necessarily quite as much the case with uh, with Inzaghi's Lazio now into um, I mentioned the game against Milan. Maybe you can say that that's a bit of a one-off because of the nature of it being a derby and all the rest of it, but it is still a bit of a thing throughout the course of the season. I mean, even in games recently, they won against uh, Venezia, I think I watched them play before the derby. And again, it was a game they dominated in. They were generally better and they did eventually win it, but they conceded first. And it was a really, really fairly sloppy goal. It was a fairly routine direct style of play coming in off the flanks that sort of thing and there was not a huge amount of organization in terms of the midfielders whereas you would have seen with Conte everybody's very very set behind the ball no matter what position they are on the pitch even if it's a really good attacking chance the first and foremost you've got those three center midfielders are all in position so that they can get back in in case there's a counter-attack against them it's not so much something you'll see against uh against Inter under Inzaghi especially with regards to the fullbacks I think there was a lot more movement infield under Conte from those to, to narrow the pitch to make sure that it was really, really difficult to play through the lines against them. Um, whereas with Inzaghi, I just kind of see Perisic in particular is a, a straight lines runner. The only one I think really who breaks away from the, the touchline is Dumfries when he plays. He's really, really good at attacking the penalty area, finding spaces just in between the defenders and just behind them as well. So he's his movement is one to really watch, but otherwise um, probably a bit more... Maybe it's just a little bit less complex under Inzaghi, I think, is is the way to go. It's a bit more about the technical build-up play and a little bit less about the, uh, you know, to the nearest millimetre where you need to be positionally. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> a very good way of, of describing Conte Ball is you, there is a place for you to be and you will be in no other place or you will be in the wrong place. Um, so their most recent game, obviously, was Napoli at the weekend. A 1-1 draw. Napoli, I think, are third in the league at the moment and obviously having a good season themselves. The only team in Serie A with a better defensive record than Inter. They lined up with Handanovic in goal. You'd expect he'll be there this weekend, uh, this week. Uh, Schrinier, De Vries, two of the back three. And DeMarco playing uh, Federico DeMarco, young, normally a left back, not so much a centre back, playing as the third centre back in place of Bastoni. Now, they are hopeful Bastoni will make this game, but it might be seen as a bit of a risk. He trained they had, today. He did, did he train today? So, yeah, they get today, he'll get tomorrow. Yeah, maybe he will be okay. That If it was DeMarco against Salah, I, I think we might see the retirement of DeMarco on Thursday. Bastoni is, is a different beast. He's one of the better young centre-backs in Europe, for my money. Um, Dumfries, Barella, Brozovic, Chalinoglu, and Perisic strung across the midfield. Now, there will be no Barella for this game. He is suspended. I, I think he's been done dirty by UEFA. I don't think it warranted the length of suspension, but he's out for both games. That's just how it is. Are we expecting Arturo Vidal to come in, or do you think Gagliardini might come in? Just a little bit more mobile, perhaps, than, what is he now, 34, 35-year-old Arturo Vidal? I expect Vidal will play for about 58 minutes and then be subbed after his yellow card. <laughs> you know he's getting booked as well. Like, there's a, if you can get him on an early yellow card, Inzaghi faces a real complex of, do I leave him on and risk that he gets sent off after 20? Or because he won't change how he plays, or do I burn a substitution after nine minutes or whatever it is and get him the hell off because he might headbutt me or something? Um, that's probably the only change in that midfield, though, isn't it? Is is Vidal then in for Barella? Yeah, definitely. The the other two are pretty much nailed on to play every single game if they're fit. So I, I don't expect any changes there. The only one you would say is maybe Damiano play instead of Dumfries, but... Uh, if he wants to be a given, bit more defensive. Yeah, but I think given that they'll... You know, obviously, away goal's not a thing anymore, but if, if they come to Anfield needing to score because they're already behind, I think it's quite a dangerous, uh, quite a dangerous thing 
to completely give up your home support, your home advantage and all the rest of it to uh, just try and be conservative and take it to the second leg. I think Dumfries and, like I said, his his ability to find space in the box and be another attack and threat for them. And again, like I say, that runner from deep, the runner at the far post, is something that we sometimes struggle against. I mean, Andy Robertson, if he gets caught upfield, as quick as he is and as good as he is defensively in terms of his diligence and all the rest of it, He's not likely to catch Dumfries, to be fair. He's a very, very powerful runner. And his, yeah, and his, his movement is exceptional. He is one of the biggest threats from crosses from the opposite side of the pitch. So uh, definitely one to watch for us. I think the best course of action is for Virgil just to walk up to him and say, none of that. None of that today. You get yourself back in your own half and you stay there. You respect your national team captain. You won't be in the squad next time around. Um, no, Dumfries will be a danger. If... If Darmian plays and DeMarco plays, I actually think we'll see them flick back to a 4-4-2 when they lose possession with Darmian tucking in it right back. They did it a bit in that Napoli game because DeMarco is more comfortable as a left back. But De Vries in a four at the minute is, is, is shaky and in a three he's been shaky this season. The front two will be the front two, I'd imagine. I don't see any change from Dzeko and Laturo and Jekyll's obviously, look, we saw Veghorst cause us some problems yesterday. Jekyll is a, a better version, though older and less mobile. But Lauturo's the one, he's the real danger man now with Barella out. Lauturo Martinez is the one player in that team that can really hurt you, other than like a Chalanaglu set piece or long range shot. That would be the big concern is, is Lauturo Martinez's movement, like you mentioned earlier. His aggressiveness in, in getting into the box, finding that little bit of space, getting in front of a centre back makes that he makes that run really well, where he, he runs between the centre backs and then cuts in front of one centre back to get first to the ball, and he's very very hard to pick up, and he's got a lightning quick first five yards. So he's the he's kind of the concern here, Carl. Yeah, he's, I think he's probably their standout player uh, in an attacking sense overall. And maybe Dzeko is the overall bigger goal threat for them, but a lot of it comes from the space that uh, Lautaro can create. Uh, I think in Serie A, Lautaro's actually scored more than Dzeko this season anyway. But uh, he's obviously a creator as much as a, a chance taker, a shot creator. He is his movement's phenomenal. It's off the scale at times, you know. If he's really, really on his game, he's a very, very difficult player to stop off the ball, let alone when he gets in possession. But again, I have to say that I've seen plenty of games from him this season where he's not really hit the heights. Venezia was one of them. I think he was subbed off fairly early in that one as well. Um another one of them, which in the derby you would say Maybe not went missing, but definitely didn't have anywhere near the kind of impact that he's capable of doing. You know, it's not a surprise that some of the time Simone Inzaghi is not hesitant to sub him off. Obviously, they have quite a few attacking options, which maybe hasn't always been the case over the last couple of years for them. So he has to do an element of rotation anyway. But because of the way Inzaghi wants his build-up play to happen, because it is very much concentrated in... Uh, the link-up play between the front two. One of the midfielders, usually Chalinoglu, getting forward into those little half spaces outside the, the the penalty box line. That player who does the link, who becomes you know sometimes an extra midfield player, sometimes a forward player, who's able to go on the outside of the the wing backs to to combine out there. If they're not on the game, his game plan kind of falls apart a little bit mm. because otherwise it just very quickly becomes aimless crosses from deep not even, not even from high good positions just from deep towards Zeko and see what can get on the second ball Inter are very good at the second ball as well with uh, Brozovic is a really good long range striker Barella loves to be in and around the D that sort of area so they are very dangerous at that as well and even Vidal that's one of his big strengths as well mm. as running on to knockdowns and all the rest of it but Liverpool are pretty good at defending that part now I think it's it, we're much better at the not just the clearances but the second balls and making sure we get to that than we are actually chasing the runners through in open play so that side of it doesn't concern me quite as much um but like i said with with laudado if you catch him on a, a good day he's very very difficult to stop in that build-up play and still get shots away when he's in and around the box so he's absolutely the the main danger man 
And like I say, we have struggled a few times up against a two-man attack. We keep referring back to it because it was one of the most horrendous days, but the Brentford day out, that was not the kind of thing we want to repeat against Inter, who obviously have better build-up and better forward players anyway. But even yesterday, they had two men up front as well, and you could see what they were trying to do. Now, they couldn't time the offside well enough, but Veghorst did give Matip an immense amount of trouble we saw Ivan Tony give Matip an immense amount of trouble as well. And, you know, it's not a traditional two-man front pairing, but when we played West Ham, because Bowen plays so high and so close to Antonio, that pairing caused us trouble as well. And again, it was that more physical, bigger presence going up against Matip and causing him some problems. And KR99 has said in the chat, Matip up against Dzeko is a bit of a worry. I think Kanate should start on Wednesday. And I have to say, Carl, I do agree. I think this is one for Ibu. I haven't been impressed with Joel Matip recently. I thought he was poor yesterday. Grew into the game. He was better for the last 20 minutes as we calmed the game down. But I thought he was poor against Leicester as well. Um, His passing was very sloppy. Defensively, he was asleep a couple of times. I think this one might be a game for Ibu. I agree he's been hit and miss, but I think I would probably stick with what we've had. Um, I think the the idea of keeping the players in for the last three games, the cup game where we were a bit more stronger than we usually would do, the weekend game and then this one, um, I think that the plan would have been to get first-teamers who were basically starting this game up to speed as quickly as possible and get them match time and back up to rhythm and all the rest of it and then play this game with them. Um, I think that that was presumably the plan and i personally would stick to it i wouldn't have any issue with someone like kanate coming in because obviously we know that even if his his uh understanding and his rhythm isn't quite there he does at least have the physical capacity to get him out of trouble at times um but overall i think understanding big game first leg i'd be more inclined to stick as we are at the moment and just hope that matip can rediscover at least his uh defensive positioning form and on the ball and all the rest of it just get that up another notch with this game yeah, I mean, look, I, I, as I said, I would prefer Kanate in this one. I think that that recovery pace is is very, very important as well. And with the movement of Laturo off Jacko, um, I, I think Kanate might be better set, set to deal with both of them. I think Matip, they're the two types of strikers that give Matip some trouble. Those kind of beanpole aerial guys and then those real nippy, aggressive runners. But if it's Matip, it's Matip. And look, we'll we'll trust that he gets by. He's he's experienced. He's more than good enough. And he is the best centre-back in the world playing next to him. What I have noticed is Virgil screaming at him a bit more in the last couple of games than he had previously. So it's obviously something that they're aware of. Um, I assume there's no debate. It's Alisson in goal, Trent right back. Robbo left back and Virgil left side centre back. I assume, you know, regardless of who the right side centre back is, the other four roles are nailed on. Um, unless you want Adrian in there for a run out. I, I run out, I, I tell you, there's a Coliseum not all that far away. Just get him on a, on a train, run him out into that Coliseum, mm. go to the zoo, find the lions, and let's recreate some stuff that happened a few thousand years ago. That's the run out I'd be giving him. Never, ever, ever do I want to see him play in in any sort of meaningful game again. Um, Right, let's do the forwards first, because I think the midfield is where we might disagree. Salah will start. Yes. Jota will start, in my view. Left or centre? I think he starts centre. I thought Bobby was so poor yesterday. I just don't see there's any justification for playing him. Jota through the middle has been on a tear this season. He's scoring goals for fun. And I think his movement up against De Vries is likely to cause Inter's backline absolute panic. Whereas Bobby, I think De Vries will cope with him a bit better because he'll be happy enough to let him drift and wander and just pick him up when he comes into central areas. I don't think he'll be able to cope with, with Jota's movement, his anticipation or his speed. Jota in the air through the centre up against De Vrij. What do you reckon? Well, he's 
scored goals against defenders who are better in the air than him. He, he doesn't contest the chances with them. He gives them that little shove, that little love tap. You just step out of the way there, son, takes a step the other way and gets his head to things. Um, I also think, you know, the the types of crosses we put in, we can vary from the higher ball to those dipping, bouncing ones that are played from a little bit deeper, a little bit further out. Both Trent and Robbo excel at those. They're, they're not the the Stigging Bjornaby crosses that you were referring to earlier that Inter tend to start chucking in at the head of Ed and Jekyll. Our boys are a little bit more cultured than You than leave theirs. my Stig Bjornaby alone, will you? Listen, an all-time great player. I saw, now I don't believe this for one second, <laughs> completely off topic. I saw a list the other day of the best assist seasons by Liverpool players. And obviously it's dominated by Trent and Robbo. But in about seventh place ever was Stigging Gibjornaby for one season back in the 90s. I refuse to accept that. I will have you known that our Stig is in the top 15 of assisters for Liverpool for the Premier League era. God, there were some dark times in the 90s. And the 2000s. And the early 2010s. The Premier League only started in 2016. That's as far as I'm concerned. That's what we're looking at. United can say that football only started in 93. Chelsea can claim it only started in 04. Uh, City can claim it only started in 09 or whenever the, the Sheiks took over. We can say it started in 2015 well, when Klopp took over. But 16 when we started to be good. We can play at their game if they want. Um Yonaby has has the same amount of Premier League assists as Alonso and Gary Mack put together. So yeah, but he played for the club go. for for there longer. There you go. <laughs> How long was he at the club for? About like eleven years or something, just hoofing balls in from all kinds of ridiculous angles. I remember when we we had who was it we had up front? It was somebody small playing up front Riedler. on their own. <laughs> no, it wasn't Riedler. No, I I was at the game. I just can't think who was playing up front. I was only a kid. Are we uh, talking a Bjornaby game? A Bjornaby game. Was it Was it Dean Saunders? Did they overlap? I think it might have been Dean Saunders. This is great radio. It was from like 92, 93, I think. So Dean Saunders. Was that the... No, Dean Saunders might have been gone. Uh, Stig Inge. I can't think. It's an awful long time ago. And I'm very, very old. Yeah, no, Stig came the year after. Uh, Stig Ingebjörnaby is the sporting director at AGF Aarhus in Denmark. I did not know that. He was the sporting director of Rosenberg for four years. I did not know that either. See, all this Stig trivia is what people have come to this Inter Milan podcast for. Without question, without question. The Stigging Bjornaby podcast. We should we should do an hour on Stig sometime. Um, described as a solid, no-nonsense fullback. That is a very polite way to describe someone who volleyed attackers up, in the, up into the stands on a weekly basis. He had the Nat Phillips approach to tackling. Just boot them up in the air and hope for the best. I can't remember who it was, but I remember watching him play a ludicrous pass across into the box from about... About 40 yards out, just pumped into the box at our one striker who was up against two absolute grocks and had no chance. And then Bjornaby looked furious that he hadn't made more of an attempt to get the ball. Um, Stigging at Bjornaby, Jesus wept. Um, right, what were we talking about? Inter Milan. You forgot what uh, we were doing. I you? did forget completely. Um, right, so... Would you go Bobby through the middle then, if not if not Jota? No, no, I'm going Jota. I, I just want okay. to hear your reasons. And who is playing on the left? Sadio. Yeah, that's where I would yeah. go as well. Uh, keep Diaz. I think Diaz will come off the bench in this one. Yeah. Um, and I assume Bobby will as well, but because there's five subs in the Champions League, so you might as well keep them both held back. Right, so we're both going... Salah, Jota, Mane up front. I think everybody would be happy to see that. Regardless of whether it's Kanate or Matip, everybody will be happy with the back four. Uh, in midfield, Fabinho starts, yes? Every single game he's available for him, which matters. 
Thiago starts, yes? On the left. And who starts on the right? Am I choosing or is Klopp? I want you to choose. Now, I don't think we... Oh! Oh! It's a thing of beauty. (laughs) I Drinkle, mark it down. Get this clipped to go out as a little bit on Twitter. Carl Matchett has has selected Nabi Keita. The sun has risen. I don't think Henderson is this nailed-on starter that people assume he is anymore. Klopp spoke recently about picking on merit and about people who expect to start not necessarily starting. And it was very unusual for him to say it the way he did. It wasn't something he's come out with in the past. And I felt like it might be an indicator because it happened around the time Thiago got fit, Harvey got fit, and Naby came back from AFCON. And I did wonder if it was directed at certain individuals in particular. I don't know. I mean, he likes to keep people guessing, doesn't he, with what he says in the media, and it's certainly not always true. We know that. And that's fine. That's one of his techniques and management style and all the rest of it. But I think that that's all besides the point when it comes to Henderson, who is... You know, obviously not been in good form for too many of the recent games before and after the international break. And he was out with a little minor injury before this most recent weekend match. And then he obviously took a knock during the weekend match as well on his knee when he missed time to tackle and got a yellow card at the same time. And he was subbed off first. I, I don't think that all of these things are just isolated. You know, they, they, they go together. We, we needed a bit more control in midfield at that time. We needed... Diago to come on and play, and it was Henderson who had to come off. And yeah, he, when he, he, had, he when, had to come off because he was having a stinker. Yeah, like, yeah, but that's what I mean. It's not. There it's was not, no excusing that performance. The, the knock it on the all knee. Isolated. These things go together because of all of them. Mm. They, all of, when you put them all together, that's that's what you come up with. That's the answer. Henderson had to be the one to go off. We had to make a change, and he had to be the one um, for for this particular game. Them being without. Uh, uh, Barella is a, is a really really big thing for them I mean not only is he like just really good on the ball obviously but in terms of his energy his movement and his ability to play equally well in both halves of the pitch on and off the ball he's the one who sets the tempo for them he's the one who you know gets the team playing a bit quicker who gets the team defending a bit more aggressively at times Vidal can only do one of those things now he used to be yeah. like one of the best in the world at doing that job both both halves of the pitch you can mm. play him as a six or a ten and he would be nine out of ten but that's like 10 years in the past now and he can only do one of those jobs very very well he, you can use him to defend quite ferociously and whip the crowd up and all the rest of it or you can use him to burst into the box and be a real pain in the ass for the defenders but you're not going to get both out of him for more than five minutes at a time now i think that it's very very important liverpool still have that in the team because that's especially in the away game where you know you think that they're going to be a bit more comfortable, a bit more inclined to attack and all the rest of it. We have to be able to not just match them, but overpower them in certain areas of the park. Wingbacks are going to be a really, really intriguing tactical and physical battle because they're so direct and quick. Three against three at the back. I think it would be better for them than a lot of times when teams go to a back three against Liverpool and just works out horrendously for them because they don't Yeah, because they're a back exact- three team yeah. rather yeah, than a spoofing exactly. manager trying to make things up as they go along. Very. Very much so. This is a team who have played this way for absolutely ages. It's slightly different this year, and the the defensive uh, spaces are a little bit different, but all things considered, this is a back three team. I think our two big things where we can win this game, not just the the tie, but this particular first leg, is one, uh, which is why I was asking you about Jota, is between the centre-back and the goalkeeper, and I'll get to that one in in a minute. But the other one is this position in midfield. It's basically going to be our right side in midfielder up against Chalhanoglu, who is nominally their attacking midfielder. So if we consider that Diago is going to start and probably be on the left-hand side, he's going to be up against Vidal. He will beat Vidal. Simple as that. Obviously, yeah. he doesn't have the aggression or physicality, but he's a smarter player than Vidal is. Technically, maybe they were on a par a while ago, but Diago has more consistency about his technique now. Uh, he, he'll win that battle. Simple as that. So it's really, really important for us that we have someone who can match Chahanoglu's runs defensively, but also 
get beyond him where he's not going to track back. And I think that that's Cater at the minute. Obviously, I think Harvey Elliott can do that job, but mm. I don't really want to chuck him in for his first start post-injury in the San Siro in this match. It wouldn't be ideal, but it wouldn't be out of the realms of possibility. This is Jurgen Klopp, the guy who went to the new camp, dropped Henderson out of the team, even when playing Ginny Wijnaldum as his number nine. So even taking Wijnaldum out of the midfield, he still dropped Henderson out of the team. He will do things that you don't really expect him to do just because he thinks it's the right time or a player can handle it. And if there's one kid in world football that could walk in to the San Siro, take a look around, have a look at the other lads on the pitch and think, you know what, I'm the best player here. It's probably Harvey Elliott because he just doesn't seem in any way awed by anything that gets put in front of him. He does genuinely seem to have a belief in him that whatever pitch he's on, he is, if not the best player, certainly one of the best players there. And I don't think he'd be in any way put off by the fact that it's Inter Milan at the San Siro. And I think he would have an absolute field day running off the back of Hakan Chalanaglu. You know how they say defenders get nosebleeds when they cross the halfway line? So does Chalanaglu, but it's when he crosses the halfway line going back towards his own goal. You'll yeah. see him sprint only in the opposition half. He couldn't be arsed. No, I heard a rumour that... Yeah, Charles Oglu's, uh, you know, pre-match handshakes actually usually include the centre-backs because he never gets close enough to them during the game <laughs> to know who they are. Oh, he is he is a, a very much a one-way player, is, is El Hakan. Um, lethal from range, like, can, can score ridiculous goals that are in no way fitting to a player of his... Say fairly limited abilities. He's a good player. He's he's not a great player. He's a scorer of great goals. Um, the lack of Barella is huge. If Barella was playing, I'd have I'd have some concerns with Thiago. You know, having to go traipsing around after him. But like you said, I mean, with Vidal, it's fits and bursts. And if he gives you everything he's got, he's absolutely goosed by half time. There's a reason. I think he started five games this season. And two of them were in the uh, in the the Italian Cup. He's he's not a first choice player. He's he's very much a squad player. I I would go with the same midfield you've mentioned. And I mean, there's just there's absolutely no calls to play Henderson in this game. He's been poor all season. You can count the number of good performances on one hand. Yesterday was appalling and wasn't even his worst performance of the year of the season. Rather like. When you touch the ball 48 times in a game and you lose possession 24 times, when you attempt 38 passes and only complete 19 of them, that's awful. When you're not tracking runners, that's awful. And we saw yesterday, I mean, Vud Weghorst is, is one of the slower players in Europe. And he and Henderson took off running from the edge of the Burnley box after Liverpool set piece. Henderson had a two-yard head start and ran in a straight line. Veghorst ran from the corner of one box diagonally towards the corner of, of the other box. And he beat Henderson by five full yards in that foot race. Like, if if he can't run, he's never been great defensively and his defensive numbers across the last 12 months show him as one of the worst in the league. And he's just not particularly good on the ball when his when his game is not on. What are you playing him for? Is it leadership? Because Virgil's a leader, Robbo's a leader, Thiago's a leader, Fabinho's a leader, Salah's a leader. Matt, like, how many fucking leaders do you need in the team? There's no real cause to play Jordan Henderson tomorrow, or Wednesday night, rather. So, Naby has earned the right to start this game, in my view. He's been really good this season. He was really good against um, Burnley. And I do wa- I do wonder if maybe he'll play Naby on the left, though, and Thiago on the right, the way they played when Thiago came on against Burnley and let Thiago play that bit further forward, let 
um, let Naby deal with the more, I suppose, ferocious play of Vidal. If Keita plays on our left, I could see Vidal getting sent off. I think he get very. I think he get very frustrated at the uh, the way that Keita does the ball retention. You know, the little turns away and the little twists and the little step overs going the other way. I could see one of them being a wild swing. Well, if you remember in that Champions League semi final where Klopp dropped Henderson, Naby played on the left of our three. Vidal played on the right of their four, and Naby left them standing looking confused on a number of occasions before Rakitic hacked him down and injured him and amazingly escaped the yellow card. It was a horrendous foul, and yet somehow escaped the yellow card. Vidal didn't know what to do with Naby on that day. Mm-hmm. So Klopp is, is always one to remember strange things, so maybe he'll look back at that and say, that's an avenue I want to exploit. Um, yeah, I, I would go with the same midfield. I would. I, I'd go Naby and Thiago either side. I, I think, you know, I think they're both probably better on the left. I think they're more suited to that left-sided role. But I think they're they're both comfortable on the right, and you know they can always interchange through the game. They're going to play a lot of keep ball if it's to them. We saw them just you know racking up the passes uh, while frustrating the Burnley players. And um, and Fab will just, you know, do what Fab does. He'll hoover up everything on the edge of our box. You mentioned Inter's love of the second ball. Fab is the reason we're so good at defending that second ball. And I think we'll see more of that. So it, it, I think we're going to have a really strong team. I think we're going to win this game. I'm very, very confident we'll go there and beat them. Um If it was, like I said, it was last year's Inter team, it'd be a bit more concerned. and. Especially if it had been last year because Conte, you know, would happily go for a nil-nil at home and try and sneak a one-nil away. With no away goals, there's no real benefit to that anymore. It's one of the things that Italian clubs always loved to do back in the 80s and 90s was they'd they'd get that nil-nil at at home. They'd go away and they'd score early and then just shut up shop and that'd be the end of it. With that gone, I, I think they have to come and attack us tomorrow. Or tomorrow, on Wednesday. I think they have to attack us. I don't think they can afford to try and keep it tight and get to Anfield because I think we'll tear them apart at Anfield. I think they have to come and attack us. And um, I'm going to predict a 3-1 Liverpool win. Not bad, not bad. That was pretty close to mine. I've actually gone for 3-2 in the end. Oh, uh, I think there will be one or two you know, incidents and one or two moments where we're not quite up to scratch. Sometimes we just seem to take a little while to get back into the European groove and uh, on the road. We've not always been tremendous. Obviously this year in the group stage we were, but that's very much a a bit of an aberration. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, especially if we do start a little bit slow the way we have done uh, the last few games since we came back from the international break, if they make a bit of a quicker start, because I completely agree, they have to go on the offensive for this one. They have to get themselves some sort of positive result, I think, because it's really going to be difficult for them to win or even not lose at Anfield. So I wouldn't be surprised if they score early. Um, but you know what I was going to mention before, and this is the big reason why I picked Jota to start as centre-forward. That gap between... De Vrij and Handanovic in goal is where at least one of Liverpool's goals will come from. Uh, whether it's a little through pass or a cutback or the cross from Trent on, on the right-hand side into that little zone, De Vrij is a really, really good centre-back. And I, I, I do think that he's you know one of the better central defenders in Europe in terms of the clearances and the defensive technique and positioning and all the rest of it. But he is, and I say this with a lot of admiration and respect for the rest of his game, an oak tree uh, he he does not turn tremendously well at this point. He does not really uh, have the the complete, I don't think, spatial awareness of behind him because he's used to playing, obviously, in the middle of a three now. He's got Scrini and Bastonia, very, very mobile players either side of him. He is pretty much a guy who is forward-looking, not so much paying attention to everything that goes on behind him. And on the turn, I, I think he's done quite easily. He does not drop into those spaces he's much more on the front foot to clear things that kind of thing so that zone in behind him a danger area and on the other side of that so, uh, zone is Handanovic who I have to say this year looks very very much old man Handanovic this mm. year finally he's starting to really look his 712 years of age now 
uh, and the game against Milan, especially a couple of the, the 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 shots, the Giroud goal on the turn, especially, it was not far away from him, and it took him an absolute eternity to get down to the ground. And again, the sort of movement and the headers that people like Mane, people like Jota especially, love to seem to get in is just a little glance. It's not always right in the corner. It's not always loads of power. It's just sending it a slightly different direction. And in that little gap is where he loves to be. In that little gap is where quite a lot of his headers have come from. And uh, any kind of change of direction within nine, ten yards, something something like that of the goalkeeper. And Danovic is going to struggle to adjust to that. So I can definitely see one goal at least coming from there but I do think that Liverpool are going to slightly run away with the game at some times and look like they could put the tie out of reach but maybe not quite do that yeah I think that's fair I do think that's fair I I do think there'll be a lot of opportunities for us but it, it will come down a lot to us getting that final ball right we saw the Burnley game I mean, we won 1-0, but with a better pass, a simple pass from Salah to Jota that Salah underhit, if that pass is played properly, that's in all likelihood 2-0. There was also the chance in the first half where Mane inexplicably played an awful ball trying to put Salah through. Um, if he plays the right ball, that could well be 3-0. So, you know, fine margins between a 1-0 and a 3 3-0 there. Certainly the narrative around the game would have been a lot different if we'd come away with the 3-0 win. If we get things right against Inter, we could we could run the score up on them because the the golfing class between the sides I think is is fairly substantial. Um, but they are a good team and and they will give us problems in certain areas. So you're saying three two, I'll say three one. That will do us for today. Have you anything you want to plug before we go? If you are keen on looking at all the teams the Premier League sides are playing in Europe, I have got some informational explainers who's the key players to watch tactical stuff all of that kind of thing uh, about each of them so go and have a look follow carl on twitter at carl matchett follow guy drinkle at guy drinkle read carl's work in the independent and this is anfield and listen to the two-footed podcast every day at 4 p.m the daily red every day around lunchtime we will see you next time goodbye we hope you enjoyed listening to this anfield index show Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.